and welcome to Speak Out Now's March Town Hall. We organize these town halls as a way to examine and discuss the problems we face today and what we need to do to begin to organize our forces to make the changes we all need. It is the owners of wealth and industries that make the major decisions that affect all of our lives. They, the ruling class and their governments, are the ones who have created the crises around the world. Massive unemployment, evictions and homelessness, the destruction of the environment and climate, and they've overseen more than two and a half million deaths due to their malfeasance and failure to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. We see working and poor people rising up around the world, from Argentina to Thailand, Myanmar to Belarus, People have been in the streets on strike and demanding change. Working people are the ones who do the work that makes society run, but we have allowed our work to serve the interests of the ruling class. We have a different view of the ways our lives could and should be. We could reorganize our work and lives to benefit humanity and life on earth. This will require a revolution by the working class and the vast majority to use our power to take control from the capitalists and put an end to their system. We must transform society at the roots, ending exploitation and creating socialism around the world. We in Speak Out Now believe this requires revolutionary organizations rooted in the working class to fight for socialism around the world. Our futures depend on building these organizations today. If you're new to these events, welcome, and please get in touch with us to learn about more about how to get involved and how we can organize to change the world. Our guest today has been an activist for over 60 years. Kim Moody is a socialist, a founder of Labor Notes, and an author of many books on rank and file unionism and politics, including An Injury to All, The Decline of American Unionism, and most recently, Tramps and Trade Union Travelers internal migration and organized labor in Gilded Age America. Kim will speak for about 20 minutes on the immense pressures the global working class is under and the explosive ways workers and the 99% have rebelled. Then we'll open it up for a discussion where everyone is encouraged to participate. So thank you again for being with us today, Kim, and the floor is yours. Okay, thank you. Jolene, thank you for uh, having me. Um, what I want to talk about today is just sort of establish some facts that uh, are, are questioned by the mainstream press and academia and so forth. Namely, that there is such a thing as a global working class uh, and that it is growing larger, not getting smaller, uh, and that it is to a greater degree than in the past tied together internationally in, in a way that I will talk about in a few minutes. And hopefully if I have time uh, towards the end of this to relate this to uh, what's going on at Amazon now. Uh, <clears throat> first of all, uh, Kyle, can we get the slides up? Can you hear me? Yeah, okay. All right. Um, yeah, okay, we can move to the next one. I wish I could do this. Yeah, all right. This is just to um, kind of show you the, the growth of, of the international workforce. And obviously not everybody in these numbers are working class in a you know, technical sense, but the vast majority are. We can see now, these are people who are considered employed uh, in, in uh, international statistics. Um, and almost half of them are, are women now. So that the, the world working class, uh, it's employed part of the working class is, is now half women. The, the smaller figures down at the bottom um, tell you that 53% of all of these are wage and salary workers and the rest are self-employed or family workers and we're not gonna include employers obviously here. Um, now, what about that? You know, the, the informal economy, these, these categories from the past. What I would argue, and what more and more studies show, is that people who are classified as independent contractors, self-employed workers, um, you know, the so-called gig economy, which uh, 
is, is quite large if you think of it that way in, in international terms, particularly in developing countries, that most of these workers now are in fact tied into international global supply chains. That is, they are tied into production chains that might end up uh, producing a, a car in, in Michigan uh, where the parts come from somewhere in Asia and so forth. And, or it might be a shoe that you get and someone working at home uh, cut out of leather the, the tongue of the shoe and that's all. They're not considered an employee, but they're paid by capital directly or indirectly and they work for capital and they have no choice but to work for capital. Okay, um, so let's move on to the next one. Furthermore, um, the, the world economy is uh, not post-industrial, uh, that manufacturing and industry in general has continued to grow. The world economy is growing more slowly. It is it's more crisis-ridden uh, and, and so forth. But uh, nonetheless, manufacturing tends to be, and, and related industrial work tends to be uh, growing. Because quite simply, there is no job in the world, service or otherwise, that cannot be that can be done without things. We all need things, um, you know. So it's important to, to understand the the uh, material nature of of the world, and that we still live in basically an industrial world, and that people who are classified as service workers are in fact often part of. Uh, manufacturing supply chains and necessary parts of moving parts from one thing to another uh, and so on. So we do live in a very material world in which capitalists produce goods as commodities, although services are also commodities produced by capital that is produced by the workers who work for, for capital in these supply chains. Uh, let's go on with the Next slide. Okay. It does so in the context of crisis, however. And this is a, an important point. I'm not going to dwell on it a lot. It's fairly obvious the ups and downs of uh, the world economy. This is on a world scale. The, the dropping red line, of course, is the uh, COVID uh, collapse of the world economy, uh, which was actually in the making even before the pandemic. Uh, Cause it to go even deeper than, than usual and will not be the last one that, uh, that we see. Uh, okay, next one. All right, this is just this, the same idea only in terms of unemployment. And if you can notice slightly, one of the interesting things is in the last 20 years, the unemployment, when it goes down with the recovery, each time it never goes as far down so that unemployment stays on a global level stays uh you know higher although this is these are u.s figures but nonetheless it's true internationally as well okay the the next one uh in all of this we know uh there is growing class race and global inequality inequality between the classes racial inequality gender inequality and inequality between between nations, so that capitalism's claim to even things out somehow across the world uh, is just so much baloney. It continues to make uh, inequality even even greater. Now let's move on to the next one, which is actually mostly what I want to talk about. Uh, no, it's not. But <laughs> all right. The working class upsurge. Those of you who came in early enough to see all the slides that were put up initially will already have a pretty good idea of this. This just gives you some sense of uh, <clears throat> what it takes to create an upsurge that has in fact been in the making and going on. Like this, this one consultancy found that in just in one year, 2019, 47 nations that's, that's like a quarter of all nations experience what they call civil unrest, what we would call a social upsurge or mass strikes, 64 general strikes in Europe over this period, uh, and so on with the figures and, and with massive strikes in China uh, in particular. And we have to include in this, since we're looking at things globally, the global Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, 
This is a movement that uh, here in the UK, uh, and it just exploded out of nowhere. It completely abolished the, the British myth that racism is somehow an American problem, uh, <clears throat> when in fact it's the, the product of slavery, colonialism, and, and racism uh, throughout Europe and, and around the world, in fact. Um, okay, so we, we know, I didn't bother going into all the details of uh, the various upsurges. Some of them were uh, mentioned earlier in the introduction by Jolene. Uh, but we can see that we are in a period that is not normal in that respect, that people are beginning to fight back. Uh, and if we go back to that question of, say, the self-employed workers and so forth, uh, in, in most of the studies I've seen of a lot of these recent upsurges, uh, these, in fact, are the people who, who fill the streets. You know, it, it's not so much as, as some articles say, the middle class or something like that. It is often organized workers. Myanmar, um, the public sector workers kind of let it off, but others have joined in. But all of these kind of working class people, even if they don't have a regular job, have been tending to join in these kind of mass upsurges that are taking place across governments uh, completely around the world. Okay, let's uh, go on. All right, now here is really what I wanted to get to, and this will relate, relate a lot to Amazon. Capitalism has been in crisis for a long time. Uh, yet it gets out of these crises. It has kind of three increases. That is something they've, they've always been doing. That is making us work harder. Uh, it says my internet connection is unstable. Is that so? You cut uh, out for a second, but you're back now. So oh, hopefully okay. it will stick with us. Huh. All right. Um, productivity, making us work harder, investing more in technology and machinery and so forth to, to make us work harder, produce more value for capital and so forth. Uh, well, that worked for a long time, the 50s and 60s after World War II, but it didn't work so much uh, after that. So globalization, the expansion of capital all around the world was another way of raising profits. That worked for a while. But then that's kind of lost its, uh, you know, its ability to make the sort of profits they want or need. Uh, and the most recent thing, and I think this is important, is speed, just simply speed. And I don't just mean speed up on the job. I mean the speed up of everything. It begins with lean production. Now it's more surveillance, algorithms, all of this sort of thing that guides more and more types of work around the world. Uh, again, Amazon being the, the uh, prime example of this, but by no means the only one. Uh, speed in every sense, speed of the production process, speed of moving things from one supplier to another, one part of the production process to another, speed of getting the product to the market so they can realize their profits uh, and all of, all of that sort of thing. Time-based competition, companies now uh, compete with each other on the basis of their ability to deliver a product or a service uh, in the shortest amount of time. Again, Amazon with the next day delivery, you know, is an obvious example of this. Marx called this the annihilation of space, that is distance by time. If capital can make things, can turn over their investment faster, they can get greater profits. But in order to do that, they have to have a global material and integrated logistics infrastructure. We know some of this familiar stuff, railroads, planes, cables, undersea cables for the, the data transmission and, and all of these things. Uh, these have become in the last 20 years uh, much more integrated globally, much more driven by data uh, and much more dependent on, on each other. Uh, but the thing to keep in mind, because these are all um, material things, let me just say something about the, you know, cyberspace or, or whatever, the cloud. And the, the cloud and cyberspace are material things. They're composed of data centers, which are enormous users of, uh, of energy, 
uh, but which also require considerable labor uh, and cables, uh, you know, underground and under earth and in the sky, cables, et cetera, material equipment. And so my, my point here is that all these things require the hand and mind of labor at every step in the whole process of capital creating its profits. If, it, if we move it, we can stop it. And, and that I think is the most important thing to understand. However, we have to learn how to do that. And, and let me just go on in, in the last few minutes here uh, and say something about Amazon. This organizing drive in Bessemer, Alabama is obviously extremely important. Uh, we, we really have to hope they win, uh, you know, and so forth. There's also another uh, less well-known effort going on in Iowa by the Teamsters. And the Teamsters seem to have a secret plan that they say they're going to try to organize the whole thing. I, I uh, somehow uh, lack a lot of faith in that idea. But <clears throat> nonetheless, uh, the organization, I believe, of Amazon, particularly in the case of the United States, but also around the world, uh, the next largest place for Amazon uh, isn't Europe, it's actually India. Uh, but I think these things are, you know, are important. Well, what is Amazon? Amazon, um, oh, let me say first that while there is an organizing drive going on at one or two facilities around the country now, and some efforts within Amazon warehouses that are not official union ones, but that are there, uh, it's good to keep in mind that Amazon now has 819 facilities in the United States alone. That's double what it had two years ago. And it has another 268 planned for the next year or two. Uh, its workforce has jumped from a half a million in 2019 to about 850,000, some say a million now. In other words, this company is growing at, at an astronomical rate as people couldn't go to the stores. So they, they're buying more things online and all of that. Uh, and, and I think that's a trend that will probably continue even after the pandemic, if there is an after the pandemic. Um, so one or two organizing drives when we're talking about over 800 facilities, obviously is not going to do the trick. So how is it going to be done? Well, I think, first of all, it's going to requ require a rank and file mobilization of union members to to help Amazon workers organize, to assist them, to talk to them, to provide mass picketing when, when that is required or, or whatever is needed, to use these, uh, most importantly, to begin to figure out, Amazon is one big logistics system. Uh, even more than its sales, it is, it is the most sophisticated logistics system um, you know, in, in the United States uh, since, since Walmart. Um, and what that means is that among those 800 or more facilities, there are some that are key. And if labor, if the workers at Amazon can figure out which ones those are, and I don't claim to know that, but if they can figure that out and you can get this information, uh, then they can do something that I would consider analogous to the way General Motors was organized by the United Auto Workers in 1937. What did they do? Uh, they had a series of sit-down strikes, and that is plant occupations of General Motors plants in Flint, Michigan, which was the, the primary GM location at that time, uh, and they didn't work. Finally, they occupied Chevrolet uh, plant number four, and that brought down the whole GM system and caused GM to think, well, what, what was Chevy for? Chevy four produced all the engines for all models of Chevrolet, their main seller. Uh, and so where is the node in the logistics system, the, the choke points uh, in Amazon system that can be used to help the workers, uh, you know, themselves organize uh, Amazon. I think that's, that's uh, I think the, the, the way we have to begin to think strategically about organizing and forget about the NLRB and even this new law that the Democrats may or may not pass, the PRO Act and so forth. Uh, as far as I can tell from looking at it, it'll, it'll do some good things for big workers and, and things like that. 
redefining that as, as employees. But for most things, it's not going to change uh, all that much of the way these things go. So I think we're going to have to rely not on the government or the NLRB, but on direct action by the workers themselves, finding the, the choke points in the system uh, and teaching other workers around the world that you know this is a way we can go to regain the sort of, uh, or gain the power that we need to begin to make the possibility of socialism or of revolution something that is tangible to more and more people. Thanks. Great, thank you so much for that. Um, so now we'll open it up to a general discussion. Well, uh, to the first question from, from Ray about um, wealth produced in part of the world and, and then the, the sort of richer countries benefiting from it, that of course is true, but it's also true that not everybody in the richer countries benefits very much from this. Um, you know, it does make our living standards in the US and the UK higher than they are in Sri Lanka or India or Myanmar for that matter. Uh, no doubt about that. But what I'm trying to say about the working class uh, on a world scale is the way things are produced, both goods and services now, is that they are interlinked internationally. That is, there's, there are very few things that are made in one place anymore or even services that are delivered in one place anymore. They're dependent on whether it's information or inputs of one sort or another that come from different parts of the world. So for capital, of course, producing as many of those inputs in the, in the developing countries, the poorer countries, obviously is to their benefit and so forth. Um, but in doing that, they have brought in hundreds of millions of people into the international working class who weren't there before. The agricultural part of the workforce has, has diminished. Majority of people now around the world now live in cities. Some of them are, are vast sort of slums and so forth. But we have these concentrated working classes in developing in, in the global south, um, you know, in these massive cities tied into in various different ways. And sometimes it's complicated and sometimes it's temporary. Um, and you mentioned migration, I'll, I'll, I'll mention that in a minute, but there, these workers are not only concentrated among themselves, but they are tied into the, these international supply chains, basically, or value chains, if you want to call them that. Uh, and, and I think that's something we, we have to uh, keep in mind and, and learn how to, when we do solidarity with a strike overseas, you know, are there things we can do that are more materially important than, than sending good wishes or money or whatever it is, uh, in terms of what, where we are in the, in these supply chains, you know, I, I don't have a, an answer to all those situations, but it's something we, we need to think more about as we develop a labor movement that is more class conscious and, and radical in the United States and, and where I am too, for that matter, uh, <clears throat> and, and around the world. Migration is a contradictory thing, of course. There are, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of people on the move every year, uh, mostly coming from the global south to the global north although often to the intermediate areas like the Middle East uh, and so forth, uh, is a big user of migrant labor around the world. Um, that has two contradictory effects. For one, one thing, it, it kind of makes it more difficult for people to organize if they're constantly on the move. That's fairly obvious. The other thing though, and this is historically important, is that ideas begin to move around the world with the workers. People who have come out of struggles in, let's say, Myanmar or, or India or other places where there are, there are upsurges and so forth, and maybe people have left there looking for better work uh, in Europe or, or the United States or coming from Latin America or something like that, um, they're going to bring ideas that are probably on average more radical than the average American worker has at this moment. And that's a good thing. 
And it also means that the working class in the developed countries, and this is already happening, uh, has, have become much more diverse. Uh, obviously, this is the case in the United States. Yes, this brings with it problems because there is a racist reaction against it. You know, we see this not only in the, against immigrants and, and African Americans over, but now the, the re-explosion of anti-Asian sentiment, which is, you know, Trump did, although the, the history of that in the United States is very long and deep, uh, unfortunately. Nonetheless, I think in the long run, for the working class of any country to become more diverse culturally, racially, whatever, ethnically, uh, is good. Um, we become internationalists not only by helping people abroad, but by helping the nationalities that are within our own uh, sphere of, of work. So I think that's important. Um, that relates to uh, the, this last thing that Steve said about the, uh, I haven't forgotten you, Adrian, I'll, I'll get to that. But uh, this last thing that Steve said about the, uh, uh, the informal sector, which I said a little bit about in the beginning, but I think this is very important. And when I started looking into this stuff uh, a few years ago and, and looking at it more and more, uh, at first I had the same impression every, most people have, that is that, well, these are just people who are really not in, in the workforce in any, in any permanent sense. Uh, many of them work at home uh, or they're temporary workers or independent contractors and so forth and so on, or even family workers who can be exploited within the family, of course. Uh, Nonetheless, the, what, what is clear in, in looking at more and more of these uh, situations uh, in, in the global south is that huge numbers of these informal workers are in fact as much part of the supply chains, uh, international supply chains of major manufacturers and service producers. Um, Think of it this way, uh, Amazon has all these facilities in India. Well, who, who moves uh, things in and out of the Amazon warehouses and so forth? Is it Amazon employees? No. Uh, <clears throat> it's, it's people who have a, a vehicle of some sort or who rent a vehicle or who become contractors to them. These are part of the informal sector. They're not employed by, um, you know, by Amazon, but they work for Amazon. They get their money from Amazon. They are exploited by Amazon and so forth. So this is all very clear in the garment industry and in electronics and so forth. But I would argue that we have to look beyond just those sort of classic examples. And what we see is that the informal sector, that's a, that's a category that comes from governments. That's a legal category, an academic category. If you, you know, uh, read Marx about the working class of his time. Well, and this is something I did in this, this book I wrote, Tramps and Trade Union Travelers. Nobody had a full-time job. Everybody moved around. Everybody went to a shape up. Not everybody, but, but the vast majority of workers, even skilled workers at that time. And that's, uh, you know, that, that's always been, that didn't bother Marx. He knew perfectly well that these people were exploited by capital. Even if they, you know, didn't have a, you know, job, railroad workers who were in the the most sound, best organized industry in the in the late 19th century, worked on an average 147 days a year. That's like, you know, half of what they should be working, right? Um, and and that's the way it was. And they moved around all the time too. And yet they organized unions. Not the best ones in that case, but uh, they did organize unions, and people, uh, you know, have, have done this um, sort of again and again. So I think that's important. How has manufacturing changed? Well, again, it's it's related to this. Um, the the most obvious thing, you know, goes back to the uh, to the 70s, well, 80s, really. Uh, and that is the introduction of lean production, not only in in the sense of what goes on in the individual factories, but in the increase in outsourcing. Uh, now, of course, companies have always outsourced. Um, there is no such thing as a manufacturer in any epoch in, in history 
who did not have a chain of suppliers outside of the, the major factory, the major assembly area and so forth. So it's not new per se, but the degree of it is new and how it's done is new. And this is again, what's important increasingly in the last 20 years, these supply chains have been reorganized, not only globally, but, but even within countries, within the United States, because it's such a big country geographically, um, uh, through the use of computers and data and, and communications become a much bigger part of how this is organized. If you actually look at maps of where things are, the striking feature is that actually the location of manufacturing in the United States is not that different than it was a half a century ago. This is surprising, but manufacturing is still concentrated largely in the Midwest and Upper South. Now there is more in the South than there used to be, a little less on the West Coast than there used to be, uh, <clears throat> but it's still geographically concentrated in the United States and it's tied together not only by the internet and, and all of that, but by the interstate highway system and the rail system and so forth. And so once again, you know, they even talk about I-75 as the, you know, the, the auto corridor and they, they have a machine corridor, machining corridor that produces machinery and so forth. If you look at the studies on this stuff. So it's not as, it's not as dispersed as we think, but it is organized differently. And because of that, the unionization rate in almost all manufacturing industries declined radically you know, in the last 20 years. A lot of manufacturing jobs were destroyed because new technology and work intensification through lean production destroyed these jobs, as did the major recessions of the period from the 80s onward. Um, I've argued this elsewhere. It isn't mainly imports. Uh, it isn't even mainly offshoring. Well, those those things count for some industries, uh, but really, it's it's uh, mainly the the impact of uh, the the major recessions in the last 50 years and the levels of productivity that have been enough to prevent the recovery of employment when the economy really recovers in the business cycle and so forth. Um, so the you know. If anything, manufacturing in the United States, I mean, it still employs, uh, you know, eight or nine million production workers and, and many more employees. Uh, so it's not a small industry uh, by, by any means. As I say, it's geographically fairly concentrated and linked together. Um, the problem is, of course, that the America's bureaucratic unions have no sense of how to pull any of this, this stuff together. Uh, even the organizing thing is all to be done by professional organizers. And this just isn't going to work, in, in my opinion, if we can't mobilize current union members to help reach out to each other to figure out how to use these supply chains and the, the breakpoints in them. The interesting thing about all the technology that, that holds these things together is that it's always breaking down. Uh, people probably don't know this, but it's constantly breaking down and has to be repaired. Well, this requires workers. Uh, <clears throat> some of them belong to the CWA and a lot of them are non-union independent contractors, but they could be organized. Uh, we can get a grip on all these things once, and this, of course, is the big question, once we can get a labor movement that is infected with a revolutionary view of things, a working class view of things, stops thinking of itself as the middle class and all, all of this sort of ideology, which uh, uh, works against us. Okay, sorry, I'm going on too long. Okay. Um, yeah, Stephanie, uh, um, scientists, where do they fit in? Well, it, 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 it's hard to, that's a very broad category. Um, you know, it depends where they fit in. Uh, what about the scientists who were scientists who work, uh, you know, for Google or Amazon or, or whatever? Um, well, you know, they, they are workers. Uh, when we talk about workers, we're not just talking about people who use their only their hands or, or even just their hands and mind. We are talking about people who um, help design things. 
you know, if we're going to organize high-tech industries, we're going to have to organize the, the designers, the coders, and, you know, all, all these people. Um, a lot of scientists are connected to universities. Universities um, are faculty and, and staff are organized in many cases. Um, so, you know, again, this, these are places where fit in. I think, though, that often it's the case that people become, this may sound strange, but people become part of the working class because they decide to become part of the working class. They organize and link up with uh, unions that, you know, are, are not composed necessarily of intellectuals or scientists per se, uh, but with whom they have a common employer or, you know, some, some common interest in these supply chains I'm talking about. Um, so all I can really say is that the, the way to make science fit in is to organize yourselves and, uh, and join up. <laughs> I don't know what more to say about that really, uh, but I think it's, it's important. We can't have a future society, a democratic future society, a socialist society that doesn't include scientists. You know, we, we have to have that kind of uh, input, obviously. Um, of course, I can't read my writing. Uh, No, JJ's thing. I, um, oh, uh, oh, yeah. Like about yes, unions can be a wet blanket on organizing drives uh, and and on strikes and on you know the problem we face and and a thing I spent years writing about is that our unions are highly bureaucratized. We, I call it business unionism, other people call it that. That is, they try to act like a business. Uh, they accept the capitalist system as given. Um, maybe they want to change it here and there a little bit, but <clears throat> they accept that as the norm. Um, and they accept the idea that they, as experienced leaders of these giant organizations, know more than the rest of us. Uh, they know how to run a union. They know how to run a strike. They, you know, and so forth. And this often contradicts uh, what the rank and file of the union needs or wants, uh, and prevents people from broadening out out the kind of uh, struggles that can win. I mean, I think this is going to be a big again getting back to Amazon because I do believe this is strategically important in terms of the future of, of labor in, in the US, um, it's going to require a much broader sense. Some people used to call this social movement unionism. Um, I'm not wedded to the term anymore, but the, the idea was that unions can't just act as bargaining agents. Uh, it's good when they go on strike, but they need to act more like social movements to move, mobilize people broader than their own membership uh, by doing things that are in the interest, like to a certain extent, the Chicago Teachers Union have, have tried to do. And that's one reason why I think the organization of rank and file movements within the unions to transform the unions is absolutely essential, um, you know, to uh, the future of organized labor. So yes, we have to think uh, more broadly than just our own jurisdiction or even the jurisdictions of all the unions put together uh, in, in terms of how we're going to fight capital because they don't really care about such neat little lines and so forth. Uh, and so I think that's, that's important. Um, the, uh, where were we here? Strategic sectors. Um, well, you know, again, it, it, there are a lot of strategic sectors. Um, and well, you really conclude by asking about strike funds. So I'll just go right to that. Yes, I think strike funds are important. Um, it should not necessarily be the case that workers have to have a strike fund to go on strike, but obviously it makes it easier for them to do that. Uh, I once participated in a seven-month strike. Uh, 
uh, telecom workers. We had a strike fund. They paid our rent and everything. People could stay out forever. Uh, you know, that's not usual, but it is important to have a strike fund if, if you can do it. Um, weaker, the, the thing is, though, that these strike funds, we, we should have something bigger than the, just the UAW strike fund, the CWA strike fund. We need something that can support those workers who, who don't have a union that can afford a huge strike fund, whose, whose wages are very low and hence their dues are low. And so the union can't have that. We need to think about uh, not just raising money every time there's a strike, but some kind of way that we could have a kind of shared or pooled uh, strike fund that would allow um, workers in a, in a weaker uh, situation to, uh, you know, to, to, to go out on strike. Okay, um, I think um, the, the first two questions um, were kind of similar, so I'm going to kind of answer them together. That is the, the whole question of, you know, who is uh, leading a lot of these struggles, people of color, immigrants, and so forth, and the question of how do labor struggles and these social struggles, you know, the, the, the women's mass strike, the <clears throat> Black Lives Matter, uh, these things relate to, you know, more traditional labor struggles. Um, well, again, I think, you know, there, there are, are more and more instances where actually union people are, are trying to link up to these things. Um, and in a way they're linked because, you know, when we, we have to understand that when we're talking about current union members, we're not talking about white guys anymore, primarily. Uh, there's still a slight majority, but only slight. Almost half the labor movement in the United States is either women or people of color. Uh, and those are the growing sections, and that's the way it's going to be. Uh, you know, for, for the future, because that is the population direction of, of the United States, for one thing. Um, and so th there isn't really a division um, between these things. I think it's very important that, so that union people tried to come out and support the, the Black Lives Matter movement in various cities, from what I understand. Um, and also, you know, if, if we're going to organize, you know, it's important in, in Bessemer, Alabama, Black Lives Matter movement has come out, you know, to uh, actually had a parade or something like that, you know, in support of the uh, Amazon workers who are mostly black. Uh, so, yes, they are, you know, going to be in the, the leading section. Unfortunately, so many white working class people have bought into uh, something that isn't new in, the, in America at all, of course, racism and, and all of this. Uh, but I believe that as struggles become more general, mass struggle, people's minds change. A little strike here and there, maybe not, uh, you know, just like what Mark was saying. But if, if these movements around the world become more if, if the movement in the United States becomes more like some of those, if people are going into the streets in huge numbers uh, for their own grievances, maybe, which is the case in a lot of places, um, and converging, they're going to discover that their power is much greater than they thought. That you know, it isn't just the, the power they have in a in a supply chain or something like that, but they have power to disrupt. Um, and I was reading about um, a strike that's going on, uh, and a lot of the well, actually, it's, it's the stuff in, in Myanmar, they, they're turning to stopping the roads. Well, that's that's breaking up the supply chain right there. It's breaking up, you know, the, the ability of society when you occupy the, the roads and rails and, and things of that sort. Um, so, yes, I think there is going to be, there is to a certain extent, the convergence of social movements and the traditional labor movement, which I think is going to have to cease to be the traditional labor movement if it's going to grow. And so I think what Mark is saying about, you know, this has to become an upsurge. When I use the example of 
Chevy Ford at General Motors in 1937, the UAW and so forth, remember that that took place in the context of a huge, of three years of mass strikes all over the country. And not just mass strikes, rent strikes, uh, hunger marches, all kinds of stuff was going on at that time. So it tends to be the case that labor grows when social unrest generally is much bigger. You know, for example, uh, okay, unions have been declining for a long time in the United States. Well, the one time they grew in the post-World War II period was in the 60s and 70s, and this was mostly public sector, which had not been organized. Well, what inspired that? There's no question about it. I was involved directly in that myself. It was the civil rights movement. And a lot of the people who led those new unions were veterans of the civil rights movement, you know, mostly African-Americans, but people who had been in the movement, my own experience in organizing the welfare department in Baltimore at that time, was we got together all the veterans of the civil rights movement and said, we're gonna do this. And then we went out and organized every you know, office in the Department of Social Services uh, and got a union. There was no law governing this. There was, you know, we had to do it on our own. You, you could, because we had the experience from that and the inspiration from that movement and the support of people who had been in that movement, including, by the way, the welfare clients who we who were organized and who we had an alliance with. So I think today's unions need to think more, you know, in, in those kind of, of broad terms, because it's it's fairly obvious that the people who are, and this is one thing I said about, you know, the, the migration of people uh, who have come from severe oppression and repression and so forth, but who maybe have more radical ideas like immigrant workers coming from Mexico or Latin America are not necessarily, but likely to have more radical ideas than some of their American counterparts and so forth. So uh, this has always been the case in, in the history of the United States. Immigrants play a, an important role, and I'm not saying it's exactly the same today, but I think that's uh, you know an important uh, important part of it. Um, well, I, I'm not sure what you meant by permanent revolution. So I, I, there are several theories about that, um, but I think uh, what I would rather think of is revolutionary process. Um, th that is. Once things reach a certain point of upheaval, you know, like say the 1905 uh, mass strikes in Russia that, that Rosa Luxemburg wrote about, uh, they didn't begin as radical or revolutionary or political strikes, but nonetheless, the, the sheer momentum of them pushed them into conflict with the regime and, and so forth. And of course, many of these uh, mass upsurges we're seeing, which include strikes, but are not limited to them, are uh, clashing with the, uh, the governments and regimes in, in those countries. Um, so, and, and this kind of gets also to the question of, well, what about those garment workers in the front line, you know, uh, in, in Myanmar and, and all of that? Well, the question here, you know, what in reading about some of these things, and of course, you know, I'm, I'm quite distanced from them. I can only rely on what I read about them uh, or what people tell me. Um, but one of the problems with them is that they have an enormous dyna dynamic uh, thrust, but they don't, they're not clear on what, you know, they, they might be clear on immediate demands or the fact of corruption or inequality and unemployment and all these things, but are they really out to overthrow the government? And it appears that most of these are not, actually, uh, or at least they don't get that far. And so the idea of a permanent revolutionary process kind of gets stalled. And I think this has been, been happening since the uh, Arab Spring with uh, almost all of the upsurges we've seen. That doesn't mean it'll stay stalled, but it has stalled, and we have to give some thought to how you know we we break out of that. Um, and I 
confess that I don't have the answer to that. Uh, obviously, it lies in organization and in the influence of revolutionaries in the process. Uh, you know, but there are not that many of us, uh, you know, un unfortunately. And <clears throat> so we're at a, a difficult point, I think, you know, in, in the development of these movements. My view is that the, the dynamics of what the capital and these governments are doing in response is going to provoke more uh, upsurge. And again, I think if people win big things like Amazon getting organized, you know, or some major strike wave in the United States, or again, maybe in France, although they're so used to it in France in a way that, sorry, uh, you know, that, but they, they're, <clears throat> these things are not, uh, they're not moving beyond the, the sort of, I, I don't want to call it reformist because it's, it's not that limited either. Uh, but, but beyond this sort of stage where things become extremely difficult and you have to choose uh, just how radical your movement is willing to do. And because these movements tend to be um, not particularly organized, I mean, they're organized in one sense, so that people get out there over the internet or social media or something. But um, you do need organization um, to turn mass movements towards a revolutionary perspective. And so I think we're not near that point, perhaps by a long shot, I'm not sure. But I think we are, you know, at the point where uh, the upsurges are, are getting bolder and bigger. And even if some of them fall back, you know, like Hong Kong or whatever, or are repressed for a period of time, there will be organizing going on in the ground and, and all of that for the next, uh, you know, kind of upsurge. Um, so, it's impossible to predict these things. You know, nobody predicted the 1905 strikes or for that matter, the 1917 Russian Revolution or many other things we could talk about. Um, nobody predicted the upsurge of labor in the United States in the 30s, nor did they predict the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. These things come of their own dynamics that we can, cannot control, but can participate in and contribute to in important ways. Um, the question of the city workforce and, and small plot farmers uh, in developing countries, um, well, you know, who are these city workers? These are people who the day before yesterday were these small plot farmers, you know, who are being driven off the land by corporate farming. Uh, all over the world and have them for a long time. And so I think that there are family connections, there are all kinds of connections. And so, um, you know, I can't tell you exactly how they will be made, but they do seem to, uh, in some cases, like India now, to kind of converge, at least for, for a moment. Uh, and obviously that's, that's important. Um, I would just say that, you know, I'm sort of, um, almost con concluding what I have to say about all of this stuff is that I think we can't predict, uh, you know, what's going to happen, but I think we can analyze and, and try to understand the dynamics of these things, which are in many ways so new because of the role of social media in these things, um, because there is no, there are no traditional revolutionary parties, if you want to put it that way, in, in most of these cases, and to be frank, a lot of the ones that say they are, aren't, or shouldn't be, uh, you know, and vanguardists and all that kind of thing. Um, so we're, we're at a difficult point in, in history, but it's not a, you know, I'm not a pessimist about this at all. Uh, I, I think that the more people who see people winning things, people fighting, people sacrificing to, to you know to build these kind of, of mass movements, um, I think 
the more of them will. You know, people are saying, well, this thing investment, if they win, that will encourage a lot of organizing. It already has, actually. Uh, but I think, to be honest, going through the NLRB and this boring process and all the rest of that is a little short of, you know, the kind of inspiration we need. And that if you're going to organize something like Amazon, it is going to take the kind of direct action that it did in the 30s and in other places around the world. Uh, and that will move people. As it did in, in Flint, Michigan, even before the sit-in, somebody made the point that the communities, the communities not only in Flint, but from all over the Midwest, workers flood, flooded to Flint to support these strikes. You know, if it had just been the hundred workers who sat in on, on Chevy Four, without the mass picket lines and, and the famous women's emergency brigade and all of that, uh, they might not have won. Uh, but they did have that support, and they had it from a broad section of, uh, of the working class, at least in the Midwest, in, in an active sense. Uh, so, you know, these these are the kinds of dynamics that we have to try and encourage uh, as much as we can. That our involvement in these things, you know, and sometimes it's very small stuff, like having a rank and file movement to change your union. Uh, in doing that, even if you don't get rid of the today's bureaucrats, or even if you elect somebody who ends up being just as bad, you will have organized people. You will have taught people how to fight, you know, in the workplace and, and hopefully beyond. So what I see, you know, in general is a convergence of things of these different movements. I'm not obviously not the first one to say that. It's all pretty obvious by now, I think, uh, internationally and and within the U.S., these different movements of climate change, Black Lives Matter, union organizing, union struggles, um, other kinds of uh, struggles against racism and sexism and so forth. Uh, everybody's aware of these things more than in the past. And so people, you know, even people who voted for Trump can be swept up if the movement is big enough and bold enough and, and shows them this is a way you can actually win something, not through this stupid racism and, and supporting the, this, these fools, you know. Um, so that's my optimistic view of things. I raised the whole question of supply chains and international linkages and strategic points because I think that can help as it did in, in the 30s. Uh, after all, when the Sit-in strike one at uh, at General Motors in, in in early '37. It was followed by several hundred sit-down strikes in everything from dime stores to other factories. So you know these things can catch on. Okay. Um, well, I, I have to say first of all, I I don't believe in the labor aristocracy theory. Uh, yes. People in the developed countries uh, have a higher living standard, obviously, than people in the less developed countries. But the main thing about the whole last period is that we are losing that. They are losing that. Working class is not made up of people who have just full-time jobs and high salary. People have been taking wage cuts. All kinds of concessions have been made since the early 1980s. I mean, we're, you know, almost half a century into unions giving concessions uh, so that the privileges, if you want to call them that, that people have won in the past have been eroded. And although they may still be much better off than somebody in, in India, you know, or China or something like that, from their point of view, their life is falling apart. And this is happening to more and more people. And Furthermore, more and more jobs are crummy jobs. You know, the, the greatest the greatest change in the American workforce is not just the economy, it's the universality of bad jobs. Everybody has a bad job now. Um, you have to work harder, the workload is, is generally bigger, you're not likely to get a, a huge pay increase anymore, you're losing your benefits, and so on and so forth. So this former so-called labor aristocracy is, is being demoted um, you know, to more regular working class status. Um, 
Now, what in the long run will bring, you know, the world to the point where there is something like equality, uh, the, the answer is socialism and, and a lot of time and uh, a lot of effort. Um, you know, so that's that's not going to change uh, in in the in the short run. Um, and it isn't always necessarily true that the labor movement in developing countries is more radical than, you know, uh, the labor movement in some developed country. Uh, the, the sad truth about most things is that most labor movements today are not radical anywhere, you know, and that's, that's a huge task that we face in trying to, you know, to, to, to move people uh, towards that. That's why I think I think people learn, become radicalized in struggle, to put it bluntly. Uh, you know, and, and that is the whole hope. And there is, there is nothing else. We do need to do educational work and, and all of that that socialists historically do. That's very important. But without the mass struggle, you know, that radicalism won't come. Uh, it's not complete in these, as I said, in, in most of these upsurges around the world. There are radical people there, but the movement hasn't been able to move, you know, to the to the point of being a truly revolutionary movement in most situations that I'm aware of, at least. There may be others I'm, I'm not aware of. Um, <clears throat> so I think we shouldn't get hung up on, on the idea, you know, yes, for a long time, workers in Europe and America and in the global north have been conservative because they've had a decent living standard compared to other people in the world uh, and compared to their own past. And that's important. You know, a lot of people now that's not true, right? New generations are not doing as well as their parents did. Uh, the whole millennial thing and Gen Z and all, all the rest of it, you know, they're, they're all going down into the working class, like it or not. Not all, but many. Uh, <clears throat> and whatever path they take to that, uh, because the old options uh, are just not there. I mean, even people who work for universities, I mean, I, I, I taught at universities in, in New York and here in, in the UK. I was an adjunct, like, like most people who get hired now. Uh, there are fewer and fewer of these privileged, you know, uh, people with tenure and all the rest of that. Even that workforce is is being pushed down and is striking. You know, we've had several strikes uh, here around these questions. Not necessarily the most effective strikes I've ever seen, but people trying. Uh, and so, I think. The combination of people losing that sense, you know, a lot of the people, uh, are, the problem, one problem we have, and the reason somebody like Trump comes along is he, he appeals to that. He says, you know, it's not the America it used to be. You people, you white workers, you, you know, you don't have what you used to have. And here I can give it to you. Well, of course, that's nonsense. He isn't going to give it to them. Uh, and so, you know, what we have to do is win people to the notion that if we're going to hang on to anything in terms of a decent living standard, um, it's going to have to be a, a fight of all of us together. It cannot be us taking something from you. And similarly, you know, we cannot in, in the advanced countries uh, say, well, we want all the vaccines for ourselves and screw you people in the global south or, or that kind of thing which is sort of what's going on uh, to some extent. And <clears throat> so internationalism means, you know, being able to support each other's struggles and doing everything we can to pull everybody up as far as we can and not take anybody down. Um, so I, I think, you know, that, that's sort of my, uh, my feeling about that. Um, I'm sorry, I think I kind of lost the uh, track on the on the last question that Bob had. Can you just quickly repeat that or can you summarize it? Yeah, so we're at time, so maybe you could kind of yeah. complete. Uh, his question was kind of on, on climate disruption and oh, yeah, um, yeah that, so that we can have problem. last comments on that. Thanks. Yeah, I don't have an easy answer except that we have to fight for this. A lot of the unions, uh, most unions, 
are taking bad decisions on this because they see it as losing their their jobs, their place, you know, their their institutional place. Um, you know, are all these steel workers really going to become people, you know, working with the excels or something like that? You know, how are we going to do this? The Green New Deal, you know, that's sort of a, an attempt to approach this. But, you know, let's face it, in, in this administration, it's dead in the water. Uh, they're going to come up with a few nice little things here and there. But so. I don't really have the answer to that, Bob. It's the, it's the question, but it's obviously the key. You know, we simply have to fight to make that part of the agenda of any movement that arises. And I just conclude by saying, I'm, I'm, in spite of the negative things I sometimes say, I'm actually quite optimistic about what is going on around the world uh, compared to anything I had seen for years and years before that. So take heart, comrade.